It's a feeling unlike anything athletes experience in sport. Soaring into the sky with wind under their wings, floating ever so gently in the air before sticking it to the landing hill. Ski jumping is indeed a magical sport. Welcome to Ticket to Fly, the USA Nordic podcast, bringing you news and features from the world of ski jumping and Nordic combined. I'm Tom Kelly, and we're happy to have you join us for this week's episode with your host, Peter Graves, on Ticket to Fly. The world of ski jumping is united like a family. Growing up in the Swiss village of Einsiedeln, Andreas Keutel had the influence of a sporting family and found his pathway in the sport of ski jumping. As a young ski jumper, the sport took him far and wide from the towering scaffold in Westby, Wisconsin, to the Olympic jumps in Sapporo, Japan. He jumped in three Olympics, including Salt Lake City, where his friend and teammate Simone Amon won double gold. And in 2009, Andreas Koitel became a world champion on the jumps in Liberec in the Czech Republic. Today, he lives in Denmark, far from the mountains of his Swiss homeland. While working as a sports scientist, he still remains ever glued to the sport of ski jumping. In this week's episode of Ticket to Fly, host Peter Graves explores the sport through the world champion's eyes, reliving the memories and looking ahead at some of the world's great stars of ski jumping today. Let's join Peter Graves with Swiss world champion Andreas Koitel on this episode of Ticket to Fly, the USA Nordic podcast. Hello again, everybody. This is Peter Graves, and welcome to USA Nordic's regular news magazine of the air. Today, a special show that I've been looking forward to for some time with Andreas Koidel, originally from Einsiedeln in Switzerland. Of course, uh, you will know him as a world champion and a number of times competing in the Olympic Games. We're going to talk about skis jumping in Switzerland, his interesting career, and where he has gone on to working with the Swiss ski jumping team in areas of sports psychology, working with athletes that have had injuries, uh, mentorship, and a variety of those issues. So, Andreas, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, uh, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, well, uh, let's start at the beginning a little, Andreas, and that is, uh, tell me about your childhood, the kind of environment you grew up in, and how you started in ski jumping in the first place. Yes, I was born in a sporty family. My father was a sports teacher, and actually he was also a physical coach for the ski jumping um, training center in Einsiedeln. Back in the days, there was no ski jumping hill, so it was just really physical training, and, and uh, they had to travel abroad. But he was never a ski jumper, but he was in touch with the team. And I would say I was practicing all kind of different sports when I was young, alpine skiing, athletics, all kind of ball sports, ice okay. But um, our ski club had a, a little hill, and also in the school, we had a, a competition, which was alpine skiing, cross-country, and ski jumping. And so I was hooked already from the age of seven, eight. I was hooked to the sport and um, traveling to St. Moritz by bus, two, three hour bus drive, quite exciting as a, as a young kid. And so um, I got step by step into the sport. And when, already when I was 12, I first 100 meter jumps. I, I was practically winning everything in the beginning because there was not so many competition in Switzerland. And I felt that I have a certain talent for the sport. And, so around 12, I was choosing ski jumping as my main sport. 
Do you feel that growing up doing a lot of different sport is helpful for jumping? Absolutely, because even though I was, um, yeah, I would say I started when I was seven, eight uh, with ski jumping equipment and also jumping, you know, 20, 30, 40 meters then step by step. But it's not that you just, you know, have five, six times per week, you have ski jumping training. We had maybe one training per week and, and we went for the camps. So it was still space for practicing all kinds of different sports. And that, that gave me the a good coordination. It gave me also, I would say, a broad motor skill, which is very good for, for ski jumping. I had the athletic background. And I had a good, um, you can say, tension in my body. I was always explosive, which is important for ski jumping. And even when I was, um, you know, going to the training center to train daily in the physical area of ski jumping, there was still room to practice within the ski jumping training all kind of different sports. So it's, it was playing volleyball for warming up, climbing, a lot of balance stuff. So that was, I loved to, to train and I knew everything which is challenging me is also good for ski jumping. And I was curious about maybe your heroes, although considerably older than you, a good friend of mine, the great woodcarver, Walter Steiner. Yes. Did you have any <laughs> contact with him when you were younger? He was not my idol when I started because he was already retired, but um, Stefan Zünd, he was 10 years older. He just won um, ski flying championships uh, with almost 200 meters back in the days. And um, also Jan Boklev, who was the pioneer in, in the V-style, he was dominating the competitions when I started. And I was um, lucky to see those guys jumping live. And also soon, I actually, when I was 14, 15, I already could join somehow the national team and be in the team together with Stefan Zünd. So he was also some kind of a mentor for me, showing that it's possible to, to combine studying at university and being be on the World Cup tour. So, of course, that was very helpful for me to yeah, for my progress. So, you had a uh, kind of a long run-up to your period of great success, competing on the World Cup for a decade or so, until around 2005, 2006, when you won three events. And in fact, I think you started on the World Cup when you were just 16 yeah, years uh, of age. Yeah. So, there was a long build-up period. What was that build-up period like that brought you to success? Yes, I was, as I said before, I was called the big talent when, when I was uh, young because, as I said before, I, I dominated the, the competition Switzerland. And even when we went to Austria and Germany against the big ski clubs of Oberstdorf or, you know, Stamms, I could compete with those guys. And so um, everything went quite easy for me. I, I was When I was 16, I already had top 10 rankings in the World Cup, and I thought, whoa, if I go on like this, I'll be unbeatable soon, you know. So it's when you're 16, you think the world belongs to you and everything is possible. But I, I felt also that we had uh, I had quite a tough period uh, for two, three years when, when there was results didn't come. It went actually down the hill. Uh, it was also in the period when I had to finish school. I was, of course, uh, ready to qualify for Olympic Games Nagano in 98. But um, it was not happening. I jumped pretty bad and they sent me to to the Midwest and to, you know, Ishming, Westby and Iron Mountain for the Continental Cup Tour. There I learned maybe more playing dart pool and drinking Budweiser instead of ski jumping. But it, it was a very good <laughs> eye-opener for me to go. Yeah, I like to have fun and to travel and have good friends among the teams. But actually, it's not why I do the ski jumping. I want to be also successful. And that 
that was really a, an opener for me to, to make it more serious. And when we got the coach, uh, Benny Schoedler, in I think it was year 2000, we had really like a vision to go to, to Salt Lake City and we made progress in the technical aspects. We also were not always you know, on, on the top level in the material section as a small nation. So we, we really tried to build up our own system. And I remember those training camps also in Park City the year before Olympic Games when we came to the hill. It was snow. It was in September. We had to take the snow away to jump, but it was just an amazing place. And somehow we felt that it has a good karma for our team. We felt very much welcome. When we came in 2002, I mean, we felt like it's our home games uh, because we have been there before. And even though I didn't get a medal in 2002, it was I was number six. It was like the best competition of the year. And I felt that I can actually train for a big event for, for several years and perform very well when it counts. That was an important finding for me. And then, um, yeah, I would say still after 2002, it became a big lesson because our team was catapulted from like no man's land to like being very famous and also a lot of attention, not only Simon, but the whole team. We paid, of course, the price of, of you know being invited everywhere and <laughs> not really focusing on training anymore. But we stick together. It was clear that um, it was not like that we should fire the coach or something should change. It was just we should uh, go back and make the good work. And so um, I think in 2003, when I really had a bad season, I made the fundament for my best years, which were, as you said, later in my career, about 2005 and 2010, when I was like on, on, the, on the best level. So from starting the World Cup until winning, it, it, it was really 10 years uh, with a lot of ups and downs. And of course, uh, we remember so well Salt Lake with uh, Seaman Aman doing such brilliant performances there. What was your relationship like with Simon? I was much earlier than him in the World Cup, even though he also was, uh, he actually participated in 98 in the Nagano Games. But we were not uh, like jumping as juniors together. But um, from like year 2000, as I said before, when Danny Schoedler started to be our coach, we really we were often in the in the in the room together when we traveled in the double room. So we had we had a very good relationship, and um, I would say this this emotions around Salt Lake City. I mean, especially when he won on the small hill, it was I think most one of the most emotional and most happy moments in my whole career when, when actually Simon won. But that was just amazing. I still almost cannot talk about it because it was just simply simply crazy what was going on during those two weeks. And there I also decided that I want to, of course, go to 2006 games because this Olympic experience was, was amazing. And then um, after the games in 2002, I think it was, of course, quite tough for Simon because the whole world changed. And that was somehow next to him. I could observe how people suddenly treated him totally different. How much was falling on him and he had to handle all that and still trying to, to, to function. It was a good learning for me to see what, what actually success can bring, uh, how much consequences it has. And I think also for him, it was important when I started to jump very well in 2005-06, he could build up his form again a little bit more in peace because there was more focus on, on, on me and he could really make a great comeback in 2007 when he um, was world champion again. And I would say that the, the years 2007, 8, 9, 10 were the best in our careers because we, we were both on the top 
and we really could, I would say, our knowledge and, and everything that we, what we had, we always brought it into the team to share it, to make our team better. So it was not if I had something, I just kept it for me, or if he had something, he kept it for him. We knew if we wanted to compete against Germany, Norway, and the big nations, we, we need to share all this knowledge. We need to push ourselves. Only then we can, we can have a chance to, to win some medals, and we, we, uh, we achieved some of them. And it's interesting as I hear you speak, because uh, it's sort of a cautionary tale for uh, one of the next parts of the interview coming up. You're talking about your coach. You had uh, uh, really, it sounds like, very good synergy uh, with Benny. Mm -hmm. And then here you have a a teammate uh, in Simon that has done very well. And uh, this is going to lead us to talking a bit more about... uh, what is between the ears and and the sports science of it all. But let me also take you back to the year. uh, I believe you won five World Cups from 2005 to 07. You were third in a World Cup overall 2006. And then you go to Liberets and you win a gold 2009 in the World Championships. Was that maybe, Andreas, the highlight of your career result-wise then? Um, I think uh, it's pretty obvious that when you're a world champion, everybody knows what it means. You don't have to explain it to anybody. Um, so on, on the paper, this is uh, for sure that my greatest success. Also how people will remember you maybe or how, how I was invited to speeches or afterwards. But my, my biggest success, I would say, is this, is this um, number three in the overall World Cup because it, it shows that you are – Consistent from November until March, you can jump well on, on 90 meters hills and 120 meters on ski flying hills, different conditions. So this this was um, for me really to show myself that I can I can be among the really top athletes for for a whole year. Because for example, really to be honest, the, my world championships title was only one jump, and of course it was a very good jump, but also maybe had a bit lucky conditions, which I didn't have in many other competitions where it was, uh, you know, number five, six in, in the world championships. So um, I think to be top in the, in the overall World Cup, this is also very much respected among the other jumpers um, because you can show that you are just there every time. Yes, consistent indeed. And of course, your results in Torino uh, were also very, very good. Uh, fifth in the normal hill, sixth in the large hill. So, But if you look back, Andreas, what do you think were the areas that you saw self-improvement in mm-hmm. during that period? Yeah, I had talked about that before that I felt I had a good potential for the for the sport in terms of my, my you know physical conditions I was always like tall I, I, I could always jump of course you try to improve that as well but I had a natural gift for the sport which also means that I was not having like crazy diet so of course you were looking what you were eating but I know some of my teammates had to focus much more on, on their diets to, to keep this this weight that I had always the chance to eat practically everything and um in terms of the, maybe also you said before, sports psychologist part, we had the collaboration with a sports psychologist from 99 until my career end. And especially when I started studying, it was for me, I had somehow a mix up of different roles. I was a little bit ski jump, a little bit student, a little bit private person, always a bit mixed. So when I was in the training, I was somehow still a little bit studying. or So I had to learn to divide those roles much more clear 
also what what emotional state that does it uh, come with and and also that I can actually during the day I can switch those roles consciously forth and back so really I, I I became much more aware that I have to be in the moment so when I'm studying when I'm a student I'm there then I I change to the competition mindset or the elite athlete mindset then I take the best out of this training and that gave me much more clarity and I, I could um yeah also relax better because if you're the whole day like somehow missing up mixing up the roles then it's also you have always the feeling that, that you should still do something more for this and more for that and, and that was somehow always the feeling that I'm running <laughs> behind the things so it gave me much more um calmness and, and clarity I would say Took a few years, yeah. Interesting. Took a few years to build it up. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that area that you work in as well, the area of transitioning out of a sport, is so critical. And I, I think only more recently, maybe in the last decade, have we paid a great deal of more attention to it. Yeah. I mean, the, many of the jumpers are not full professionals, um, so they have always, you can say, also either education or even need to work aside to, 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 to finance their sport. And this, this gives you, of course, also a little bit broader view what, what is outside of this small bubble when you travel 150, 200 days with your team and you think this is the only thing and it's always very important as an elite athlete, you have to be like selfish and it's often things are how you think they should be. People around you have to adapt. This is not necessarily the case once you stop. So um, there is, uh, of course, also athletes which have problems to handle that unstructured um, world afterwards because before maybe the coach is very much uh, giving the, the plan and you need to follow and you always get feedback if it's good or not. So, um, yeah, we see, unfortunately, also athletes which, which have a hard time and it takes long for them to find a new challenge or something meaning, meaningful uh, after their sporting career. And let's talk about your role as we move closer to today. You've been in Denmark uh, at the university, both studying and uh, on the faculty there. I guess you've been there for some 10 years. Time really flies. And you're working on a variety of things, which I want to discuss with you. Also, again, as noted, you're working with the Swiss team, but you're also teaching. The first question I want to ask regarding this is, and, and this is not to say you didn't have a great career, because indeed you did. Uh, have you learned anything through your teaching that you think might have helped you more as a jumper yourself? Uh, absolutely. But I, I remember actually the words of my coach, Bernie, just after he had the, the coaching education, he said, oh, if I knew all that, what I know now when I was a ski jumper, and I thought, oh, this is actually a good point for me to when I, I was studying sports sciences while I was jumping and I felt this is a great chance to, you know, I learned about nutrition, about, about weightlifting, about um, the whole health models and how to re regenerate. So I was actually able to use this, this knowledge uh, already when I was an uh, active athlete. But now, of course, I learned much more like theoretical models and so on. And it's good to analyze my career through this uh, more theoretical lens and, and some stuff fits like very well and some other stuff I'd say, yeah, it's just theories and the reality was a little bit different. But I really try to, when I now talk with the ski jumpers, which are active now, I try to combine my experience plus what the science says to make this uh, guidance. And it's not just what I think was good and what was working for me, but I also have some, you can say, some empirical um, 
findings and some more broad evidence to say, hey, this is actually working. It's not just, <laughs> I think that, but we have uh, studies which show that this has some kind of impact. And I think it's important for the, the athletes also to be critical about what the coaches or what, what I'm saying, that so they can somehow build their, their own worldview and their own, you can say, concept together with, with all these information pieces they get. Because it's not just the coach knows everything and it tells you and you do that. This is not the way to elite sport. Yeah, I think that's true. There certainly is an evolution of coaching style and all of that has evolved from the earlier days. So as we move into jumping today, which to me is and has always been such a, a captivating blend of the physical and the mental can you speak a little about both? Because both have to be firing on all cylinders yeah, very effectively. Yeah. I think this is a really um, interesting, this somehow pre-jumping state you, you, you want to achieve as a jumper. Because as you says, you want to be like totally on fire to make these crazy jumps. And on the other hand, you, you want to make a very harmonic, fluent movement, which um, if you... We often compare it also to, to, to a golf swing, you know. If I'm not playing very much golf, I played a bit when I was in Park City, but if you want to hit that ball like with all your power as long as you can, then you can be sure that you almost don't hit the ball because you put too much force into that movement. But if, if you swing it with with heart with, with, with the natural um then it will just fly and to find that state between also having total control that you are able to make this movement which you have, you have in your head, so this, but also on the other hand that you you need to let it go completely. And this this somehow dilemma between um, the, the total freedom and the total control is 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 coming extremely up when you are, for example, going for ski flying. When when everybody is more tensed, um, it's a huge challenge even for the best jumpers because you also know it can be dangerous. We saw that this year in Panitza again when a Norwegian jumper really had a nasty crash. So yes. we made some measurements with pulls and also accelerometers, and we saw that you have a huge um, tension in your body even the whole day of the competition. So even though you're resting, your pulse is like 100, 120 because you're so excited. And the difference between the trial jump and the competition jump is like 30 beats per minute just because you are so ready. And often this 30 beats extra and doesn't help you to perform better if you're already like on, on the edge of, of anxiety. So um, it's really important to to have some rituals to calm yourself down. To can be breathing, can be you know just uh, quietness because often you are overdoing it, and uh, this is not helping in ski jumping. And so interesting that you bring that up because in one of our earlier interviews, we talked to Mike Holland, American jumper, mm -hmm. uh, whose name you know, I'm sure. certain. And he uh, is a great thinker. And we were talking about the golf swing as being analogous mm -hmm. to ski jumping. And, and that's where, you know, we go into this next area about mindfulness and controlling the overall state of arousal before you jump. And, and my guess is it's different for everybody, but some of the similarities are probably learning to maybe uh, welcome that spirit to feel 
confident that you can do this after so much repetitive activity? What other things? Are, are people doing things like uh, hypnosis before events or, or anything like that? What, what are people working on for that mental yeah, state? Yeah, um, as you say, it's pretty individual. Some some say I don't need that. It's I'm like uh, it's natural for me, and I find my competition state uh, naturally. And it's also something which develops um, during your career. I think every ski jumper starts from a very early age on with visualization because you jump. Then somehow you have a lot of information from your jump, from what your body tells you, how it was your angles, how what was your tension in your muscles, and this is an important information to digest. Then often you go to the radio, you talk to your coach. He says, yeah, you know, here should maybe a little bit more arms or there a little bit more upper body. And even maybe you see the video. And and all this information you have to somehow um, use again to create a new picture in your head, which you want to achieve in the next jump. So visualization is a very natural part of our sport from the very early age. But when, it, when you get older, then also you some of those um, – Rituals can also become too stiff, so you should be still able to to have a certain flexibility. And um, here, it's it's um, as you say, it's good to start with um, more this acceptance based uh, approach, because you know that when when you go to big competitions or when you're up in Kusamo at the polar circle, and it's minus twenty five and it's blowing. It's not a comfortable yeah. situation, but it's the question: How much um, are you trying to deal with this with things which which distract you? Or can you just somehow accept it and not trying to change it because this is just uncomfortable, but you have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable and you still need to be able to focus on your task. And I think this makes a champion uh, style and it's not something which you, once you can do it, you can do it forever. You see it with a lot of foot jumpers which are struggling again just one year later. So it's it's often very frustrating in ski jumping that you, once you've, Think that you found the holy grail, and you think, okay, now now I know how to do that. And um, a few weeks later, you think you cannot jump anymore. So this is um, is is it belongs to the sport of ski jumping that um, frustration and pure choice is very close together. Yeah, frustration and elation. <laughs> And it's really interesting because, Andreas, we've all seen this for so long. Somebody has a fantastic year. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, when we talked to the Norwegian coach earlier on the program, you know, I said, what, what is it about Grunberg this year? You know, he's, he says, I asked him that and he says he really can't put it into yeah, words. Yeah. So the, the interesting thing is, which must make it fascinating in your in your business, your profession, that somebody can be, and I'm not speaking of any jumper in particular now, but somebody can be absolutely fantastic yes. one year, and then the next year they don't know what yeah, they're doing. Yeah. What accounts yeah. for that? This is really something is interesting. And as, as you say, we, we can name a few. It was Kobayashi, you know, a few years ago, or Peter Preuch, or also Maoish. And also Simon in 2010, when, yeah. he, when he just, you know, won like almost 10 competitions in a row. Um, it is often this, this, just this part after the takeoff, when, when the body and the ski is coming together. Um, this is the phase where, where the, the very good jumps are, are happening. And, when the setup, because you know it's very technical, but also very important that the material is the setup is 
as a match with with the with the with the technique and the body, and sometimes you find this this um you can say this this balance that that you can jump completely free and the, the whole equipment is just supporting your natural movement, and then you don't think what hap- what's happening in the first fifty meters, and all you re- realize is that you're flying and, it, and it's working fine, and this is of course very cool because then you're in good shape, but as soon as some some stuff is happening in this first part and then you try to correct it then to jump out and see what's happening this is like looking for information which which takes time and you're flying with 100 kilometer per hour so it means that um you, you are not giving yourself free but you're looking if you do something right and like somehow making the checkpoint and um the, the, the jumpers are trying to shape they don't make this checkpoint because they know it's working and they already see themselves flying um after 70, 80 meters in a good style. And um, yeah, this, this um, feeling of, of, of um, the equipment and the, and the body position is, um, is, is not something very stable. That's also strange because you see ski jumpers again and again making the in-run position, which they have been doing the last 20 years. And you think, mm-hmm. is it not something you can now after doing it millions of times? But still, it's like reinventing the movement again and again. I saw Jan Jahon, and you know, at the end of his career, he was still spending hours in the gym making the in-run position, just going up and down. And the coach was looking from the side. Does it look good? How does it feel? And you think, hey, you're the master. You won five times the foil tournaments. Why should you still try your in-run position? <laughs> but he, he maybe made a, a weightlifting session a day before, and this impacts your body feeling again. So often... You feel that you have a good position, but when you see it from outside, you're sitting like on the toilet. So the body feeling often is giving you wrong information. That's why you have to have this. You work on the on the basics still after 20 years and on the road. Uh, fascinating. And I want to also now shift gears a little and talk about working with the team. Maybe when you're mentoring these athletes in Switzerland. Of course, we know that ski jumping is an individual sport, except maybe for the team competition. But where the rubber meets the road, the athletes are traveling a lot together. They're spending time in hotel rooms. How important do you see the harmonious aspect of a team being a part of uh, something very important? Mm-hmm. Um, there are conflicts. I would not say that it's always the goal to have harmony in the team because in elite sport, it, it's also important that you, you're able to talk about it in, in a good way and don't have to fear that uh, criticism is not allowed because if harmony is also not really bringing you anywhere. So it's important that uh, both coaches and athletes have, have an open communication. Um, but of course, you can enhance the, the team spirit. And I talked before about that with our training camps we had before the Olympic Games in, in Salt Lake. We were in Park City for like two weeks. We made, uh, you know, hikes to the hills. We went to the, to the, we played golf together. We had barbecues with the local jumpers. And it was just, this is actually memories you remember almost better than, than the competitions after the career. So um, it's this is something you can steer as a coach. Also, that there is not just, you know, training and everybody goes back to the hotel room and maybe looks at the phone, but you can make an atmosphere where you play games together, card games, or you go uh, to make excursions, or you make also, you know, something with climbing where you, one saves the other. So it's this dependency and this uh, trust in each other can be enhanced. I mean... 
I had so many experiences from these trips to Japan, and, and you know, I, I felt always very fortunate that I can see the world. And now with the pandemic situation, I, I think it's also not so much fun the last <laughs> season when you had to be uh, on the hill in the hotel, on the hill on the hotel. So um, of course they at least could jump and could have competitions. But for me, a big part of my career was was the traveling and experience the culture, meet people, so that I would have missed last season for sure. And I love to hear you emphasize the holistic approach of sport. One thing that's so interesting to me now, and I'm paying more attention to it as a journalist, is is the role of social media on elite athletes. This is something that, you know, uh, two generations before, it was a non-issue. But how much time is this occupying a lot of people now? And do you feel there's both an up and downside to so much time uh, doing social media? I think it's, um, as you say, it's ups and downs. I, I was having a homepage back in the days, which was already quite fancy, you know, that, you, that fans could communicate with you and I could show responders and I could post some pictures once in a while. But it was not like constantly that I had to update or I, I felt that I had to read what people comment on my performance. So uh, I don't know how I would have handled that because obviously athletes are also forced to be on social media to responders and so on and, and you create your brand and, and of course you can decide what you want to post but i think not every athlete is educated in using that in, in a beneficial way for him or herself we have in the team some mm. some clear rules that we have no mobile phones when we are at the table in the hotels because it kills the ambience so everybody who takes it out of the pockets gets gets a 10 dollar fine uh, maybe it's childish but um, it is just um, the, the rules that there we talk to each other and it's also a clear message that you don't need to be available all the time for for everybody so it's it's when we eat then um this is uh, the, the team time and it's of course also important to be in touch with with your with your friends at home or with your family and and here, the all these digital um, possibilities have, have made life easier. I mean, when I was a jumper and I was in the in the high school and I had to go for camps, my parents had to send me fax papers and I was trying to follow what's going on uh, in school. And now, of course, you have all these e-learning things, and this is great for athletes nowadays. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, we have the Tokyo Olympics coming up this summer, and then Beijing will be right behind it. What are your thoughts on, on the Beijing Olympics and uh, who might we be looking for? Certainly Granerud, but others too. Yeah, you said before that we don't know what's happening to Granerud <laughs> the year after because uh, he had his great year and uh, maybe something's changing. So I would not give any prognosis uh, to who will be uh, uh, among the favorites now. Maybe we can say that after, the, after Christmas uh, next year. But um, it's quite a big question mark because nobody has really been in Beijing. Nobody has seen the hills. We saw um, in the past games in Chongzhang that it can be very windy and cold uh, over there in Asia. <laughs> um, Simon was sitting on the on the gate for like 15, 20 minutes, freezing before he could jump. Something like this can happen again. It's a, it's a two-jump competition. I think um, many athletes, they have big dreams and are ready. And um, how it will be organized, you know, it's a, it's a really, there's so many question marks. And uh, I think every team has to be ready to adapt to very diverse circumstances. And even though, like Simon had a 
six six times experience from Olympic Games, you'll be again a new and total new experience. And so you have to be, I think, quite quite adaptable to to many checkpoints, to many you know security and, and health checks, and that should not disturb you too much again for from from uh, your task and your performance. Well, I can say, Andreas, that our time has flown by. This has been uh, very interesting to me, and you are uh, a very uh, bright and, and I also think introspective that you're a thinker about this. And I, I think the sport, Switzerland particularly, but the broader sport is uh, is very lucky for the work that you are doing because at the base uh, you're not only making jumpers better, but I would like to think that you're making athletes and human beings better by your work. So uh, I don't know if you have a closing comment, my friend, but if you do, yes, this would be uh, the right time. Thank you, Peter. And actually, that is also why I came to uh, America in 2006 after Torino Games, where I spent uh, three months with the uh, with the Nordic team in Park City, because it was really also my, my goal to make the, the American jumpers better. And I remember a small girl, um, I was coaching there just for fun a few times. And I remember a small girl who was coming up and down with, with big eyes and, and always looking for advices. And it was actually Sarah Hendrickson. I was uh, spotted her talent. <laughs> um, and I was really also giving some sessions over there because I think it's important that many nations can compete and not just uh, five, six very dominant nations and then, then the rest. So I hope that uh, American jumpers have the chance to make a big appearance on the World Cup Tour as well next year. Well, uh, thank you. Oh, and one final question I want to ask you as we close here. Uh, how do you like living in, in flat Denmark uh, as opposed to mountainous Switzerland? <laughs> yeah, it, it is really a change, but we live close to the seaside. We have um, quite nice beaches. It's, um, it's a high living standard here. And so we settled actually quite well. Um, Twice per year, I, I or some three, four times, we are in Switzerland, and then of course I'm going to the Alps, which uh, I thought will be um, climbing will be my big hobby after my career, but this is not uh, not happening here in flat Denmark. <laughs> All right, well, Denmark, a beautiful place uh, for sure, as is your home country. Andreas, thank you so very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much, Peter. All right, so we've had Andreas Kudel on the line uh, from uh, Denmark. Interesting conversation. Thanks so very much for joining us, everybody. And we hope you continue to enjoy Ticket to Fly. I'm Peter Grant. So long. What an enjoyable interview with world champion Andreas Koitel. Thanks to host Peter Graves for exploring this amazing story. It has been a wonderful debut season for us at Ticket to Fly. We hope you've enjoyed the many episodes we've brought to you from all around the world of ski jumping and Nordic combined. You can find Ticket to Fly on all podcast platforms. Subscribe to ensure that you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We'll be back soon with another season of Ticket to Fly. And until then, for our host, Peter Graves, I'm Tom Kelly. And thank you for listening to USA Nordic's Ticket to Fly podcast. Ticket to Fly.